Our scripture reading this morning is found in James in the study that we're under in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and also verses 19 through 27. If you would follow with me in your bulletin or your copies of God's Word. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself sustained, un, excuse me, unstained from the world. May God bless his holy word. Good morning, I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and um, we definitely had a good midweek um, on Wednesday night. If you were unable to attend this week, I highly recommend it. Um, we are going to, after getting um, surveys from the Christ Central Church 201 class and some of the concerns and issues um, those of you who have been at Christ Central and serve at Christ Central have, I think we're going to have a pr some pretty lively discussion in that class. I feel challenged by some of the information you guys gave back to me. Um, it has led to a lot of changes already um, as far as trajectory of things I need to consider as your pastor and we as your session need to consider in leading you. And um, this church being faithful to the vision and call that God has given it. Um, and in our bread and butter class, apparently you guys are hungry for the word of God. Hungry. Some of y'all didn't know you were hungry until the food was put before you, you know? And um, so I urge you to come on Wednesday and, and watch yourself get hungry um, for what God has to say. Sometimes it works like that. Sometimes you don't know you're hungry for the word of God. You don't know how much you're missing. And you come to a class like bread and butter and they put that plate before you of God's word and you're like, wow, I've been missing this. So I urge you to come um, to midweek, and the food was good. We had some homemade pizza. Those folk can cook. I was like, pizza? But then I was like, pizza afterwards. So, um, yeah, we have, like, Johnson & Whale graduated chef's experience doing the food. And I heard next week they might have steak. Well, let me not start a rumor that, um, good. Continuing the book of James today. Last week we looked at our call to have a faith 
that performs like it believes the gospel. And we'll continue in this path today and probably for the, for the most part in the rest of the book of James. It is the way he has designed this book to challenge and change and mature what it means to go all out and all in with what we believe the gospel tells us and has done for us through Christ. Today's passage and sermon form a thesis of sorts for the rest of the book. So it's important that we get on board with what the Lord through James is teaching us. As an English major turned pastor and someone raised on Schoolhouse Rock in the 70s, three is the magic number. A three-argument thesis making for a three-paragraph content paper of your most basic five-paragraph essay. And then all the great sermons have three points and a poem. The theological importance of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now James calls us and gives us the trifecta of true religion. What he calls and describes as religion that is worthy Pure and undefiled. A bridled tongue, looking after widows and orphans, and staying unstained from the world. Three. Now, these may not be the only marks or signs or behavior of a believer with a vibrant faith, but the Bible is saying there should be some real questions and concern about your faith if you don't have these three things happening in your life. In fact, James goes ahead and uses a very controversial word. It wasn't only controversial, it's not only controversial now, it was controversial back then. He doesn't use faith or belief, he, but he calls our faithful living of what we believe religion. That religion word is brutal on our millennial and Xer and boomer ears. I know it is on mine. For many of us, religion means what? Hypocrisy, meanness, legalistic and empty and insecure and inauthentic. So we want to be thought of as what? Spiritually uh, and, and, and emotionally engaged, not just behavioristic and going through the motions. But in fairness to James, he is saying that religion is the skin and face and hands and feet for the heart of our faith and should include controlling our tongues, social mercy and justice, and personal and public holiness. That we must speak with integrity. Secondly, we must practice social justice and mercy. And finally, we must pursue holiness. Now, this sermon is what I would describe as an amuse-bouche. I hope I said that right. Gosh. I've been waiting to use that word. I heard it on the Food Network, y'all, <laughs> this week. I'm like, I adopt words, and then I played a little word thing that teaches you how to say it. I majored in Spanish, not French. I've been, I've been asking Kelly, how do I say that? Only got one chance to get it right. But it's a fancier way to say appetizer. Or something that is there to stimulate 
your appetite. So this is James's way. These three things is, are James's way of stimulating your spiritual appetite for the rest of the courses of this book. Words are something, aren't they? I like words. I think one of the staff called me a lyrical genius this week. Was that you, Charles? No? Yeah, you did, Charles. You're just trying to deny it now because you don't want me to quit pastoring and go into my hip-hop rap career. <clears throat> you can start at 43. 40 is the new 20. But words are something. You know, say or pronounce them correctly, you're impressive. Say or pronounce them wrongly, you're a show-off, right? Or just plain Jerome in the house, Philip Mig non ignorant, right? <laughs> but with our public faith, with the proverbial mic in our hands, James coming off his whole be doers and not just hearers of the word spiel is saying, okay, if you are doing lots of religious activity, but your words, your professions, right, your confessions, your verbal responses to life, if they are not under the guidance and control of God's word, that our whole religious act and acts of religion, our, our, our whole faith walk is worthless. It's ruined, may just be a show. It may be an empty, it may be empty of redeeming power. If we do, do not, how does he put it in verse 26? Bridle our tongue. I like this word bridle. We'll come back to it later in this passage. But it means controlled and motivated by God's word and truth that we speak with integrity, that we speak like what God says is true and like what God says is truer than anything else. Early in this chapter, James harps on the person who, when they have or are going through trials and tribulations of this life, begin to say that God tempted me. It's God's fault that I'm in this evil, broken struggle. And then he comes back in verse 19 and says that we shouldn't say those type of things. But when the pressure is on, we should be quick to hear and slow to speak. And quick, to, quick versus slow is telling us this, this, when life happens, we should be sure to take the time to put the bridle on our tongues before we say what is not true or blasphemous, which is to tell a lie or fail to tell the truth about God as people who claim to represent him publicly. He is saying that we should speak like what God is, says is true, and thus let it guide what and why we say what we say. In this case, the bridle here is not made of leather or nylon, but the word of God, right? That, that, that gives and determines the limits and directions of what we should say based on what we have heard and read and believed. And this is interesting teaching here. Because James is not, hear me now, is not denying that the person he's confronting about this tongue thing is religious or, 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 or a good person. He is saying this may even be the person who's doing all the right things, even the other things we're going to cover. They may be loving and moral people. But if their word and thus understanding of the world and what it needs goes ahead of God 
then we and they are living and acting for the right things, but not the right one and right reason. And that destroys and taints all our religious activities. What am I getting at? Your profession or confession of faith, what you speak as you believe what is true about God, that cannot be unorthodox and your behavior be godly and you be true and undefiled. It's impossible for you to be a social activist for God, but be willing to say that this part of the Bible is not what God is saying, that, that all lifestyle choices are okay by God if they're loving and don't harm anyone else. Or that you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, or that there are other faiths out there, or they are all the same thing, that somehow a good Muslim or Jew or Buddhist can do enough good, de deny Jesus, and get into God's good, saving, heaven-bound graces. Whereas you tell people about your faith, you kind of downplay that you believe that there is only one true God, Lord and Savior over humankind. Or that you can somehow be good enough or too bad for God to love you. That grace is somehow not so necessary. Bridle your tongue with God's word and truth or your religion or your public acts of goodness are faulty. This is just one part of bridling your tongue. We're going to get some, into some more later in James. Because I know you're thinking, what about that other stuff? We're going to get to that. But I think y'all have, have a hard enough time just handling this part. Because I tell you, this week, the dry repair guy came to my house. And I told him I was a pastor. Which meant I was letting him know I had religion. Which I try not to do. Because of what happened. Because he started talking about all this stuff about God. And he asked me, who do you believe God is? I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> because he asked the question, but he didn't stop. Who do you believe God is? Huh? Huh, pastor? Because let me tell you, right? Yes, your pastor was under trial in my hallway. I got nervous. I was scared. I was even afraid of rejection. Yes, I have four years of seminary, but I was feeling stupid, right? And not being able, I was afraid of not being able to adequately handle his questions or letting the faith down in some way. I had to slow down and bridle my tongue. See, <laughs> and say, I believe God is who he's says he is, reveals he is in the scripture and has in these last days revealed himself in the flesh as the Lord Jesus Christ who came, lived, died, and rose again. I even started coming in line with the Apostles' Creed we say at church, right? Like I felt my tongue like saying it as I spoke, I was hearing, right? Hearing it, slowing down my tongue and even my anxiety and fear and anger to get into, right? To be harnessed and held by what God had said. And boy, did I feel stupid and vulnerable. And he went off on the Bible and Jesus and everything else and cave drawings and spaceships. And I had to, I almost got angry and told him, you stupid man, spaceships. Well, you know, in Ezekiel, brother, that chariot throne is really a spaceship. And I was like, sort of. 
It's a little uh, otherworldly. We don't see God's chariot throne every day. Okay, it's an unidentified floating object. I agree. But I wanted, I was tempted to be one of those cool, liberal, everyone has some truth. Yeah, understand. God is not that concerned about us getting the Jesus thing right as long as we love our neighbor and I have determined what love my neighbor and God is all about based on my experiences and view, being truer and more loving than God's word. My tongue kind of rushing ahead of God's bridle. I even wanted to talk more about my own struggles with the Bible too than tell him how good God's word was to me. You know, if you don't know what to say, say that you don't know what to say. And hear the word. Yeah, learn the word. Begin to build a bridle for your tongue. Slow down. Be slow to speak. Listen a little bit. Grow a little bit. Commit yourself to learning the word and what it says a little bit. Because James will come back to this strong. We'll move on for now. Just wanted to give y'all a little amuse bush. My mouth can't even make that word right. I must have played the lady, a moose boosh, a moose boosh, you're not even playing. Okay, anyway. But James flips it on us, right? He, he, he won't just let us be thinkers and theologically comfortable and astute. God, we're going to take some time today. We got, we got lunch for you. So the past is going to be the past is time to talk. So just chill. We got food for you today. So I don't feel bad about, you know, Letting the Baptist beat y'all to the buffet line. Y'all Presbyterians, y'all got long sermons. But James flips it, right? He, he won't just let us be thinkers and theologically comfortable and astute hearers and believers and speaker. He calls us, as verse 22 through 25 says, to be doers of the word. So he says, if you're doers and you don't talk right, you ain't right. And now he's saying what? You need to be doers and not just talkers and thinkers. Now, last week we explored this in some detail. Hopefully it'll be online soon if you didn't hear it. But we need to remember that we fool ourselves, that we may be deceived. That is, we may be wrong that we are pleasing God and wrong that we belong to God if we are not doers of what he has commanded us to do, which James makes clear is what? Look at verse 27. What is doing? He says, religion, that is pure, that is doing, acting out your faith, that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. Man, you don't get more direct than that, do you? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we already talked about the negative one, right? You can't have religion and not have a bridal tongue, right? That, that's the first one. Now this one is, how do you have religion then? When James uses the term widows and orphans, we could spend a little bit of time on this one. I believe he's being widely descriptive. He's describing God's call on us to care for the disenfranchised and oppressed in our society and communities. And when it says visit them, the word means to look after, to focus your attention and ministry efforts on them. 
And as much as I want to make us, that's me too. Oh, I wanted to so get in the, in the comfortable bed of spiritualizing this thing. And what it means to be disenfranchised, and it's true too, but I wanted to just be, oh, we all just kind of oppressed, right? But James is talking hard numbers and experiences and people here. He is saying those who would starve and not have housing, adequate housing, or be exploited or used or abused or stuck in the proverbial mud or oppressed by historical, historic and systematic prejudice, right, without help, who grow up with a glass ceiling attached to their backs, who are made to suffer under money-making schemes, those whose debt can only grow larger, who can easily be forgotten, who have little or no voice without, without someone getting justice and being a voice of justice for them are the widows and orphans in our day. Because I will tell you that the disenfranchised are more often than not, 99% of the time, always the victim of some kind of injustice, of some kind of missed or appropriated benefits or protection, or dignity, or being seen, or included in some way. But not only justice, this is a call of mercy. Because helping people described by James as widows and orphans is not, let me say it, not, that's, that's the word you got to remember, not going to be economically, socially, or culturally beneficial or balanced for you and yours in any way. There isn't a kickback for helping this group. And if you're looking for a kickback, you're breaking religion already, right? And this is a group that cannot and will not return the favor. Hear this carefully, y'all, especially us middle-class folk, as we like to call ourselves. They will not return the favor by being all you want them to be. If we help them, maybe they'll be like us balanced and good and I've said this before live in a house with a dog in the station wagon with the wood on the side maybe they'll have the American dream like us James is saying no widows and orphans are like that oftentimes forever these are people who have here's hard thing too who have background and all sort of sorted and twisted reasons why they are where they are. They always have, people always have complicated issues and stories. In fact, back in the day to be an orphan, a widow was assumed that you were being visited by God's wrath for something you or someone close to you did wrongly. You were cursed in some way. God is calling believers to befriend and make family of and help and have our focus on the cursed and cursing and even disease to our sense of personal, economic, and cultural worth and values to show mercy and justice. Single mothers. The prisoner. The ex-con, the refugee, and the immigrant, both documented and undocumented. The poor of the inner city ghettos, trailer parks, rural reservations in Appalachia. The mistreated and abused LGBT population. The African-American young male 
the underachieving, under-successful white male, our women who are often victims of abuse, domestic violence, rape, sex trafficking, something I learned the other day, rape under deception, the orphans, children who are also sex trafficked and abused, the, the forced drug addict and, and less easy to see, are single women with or without children, especially single women, in general, who having to live life and do life on their own, who are economically strapped, often lonely in getting things fixed, or have a hard time feeling safe and getting paid fair wages, who are relationally forgotten as not part of the family, and young family ministries that churches spend most of their money and energy on getting and keeping. True gospel living? True, undefiled gospel living focuses on these folks. Have a heart for these folks. Let me put it this way. They don't feel okay, right? They, they can't be joyful. They can't get right. How did Martin Luther King Jr. put it and coin it? They are divinely dissatisfied if things aren't right with those folks. We've had some really racially and socioeconomically dividing situations this year for the last few years. With what went on in Ferguson, Missouri with Michael Brown. And then Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old African-American boy shot by police in Cleveland for having a fake gun. And then Eric Garner, African-American man choked to death by police in New York who under the choking arm of a police whispers, I can't breathe. And then Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old African-American teen, shot down by security guard George Zimmerman. And in that pause, what went through your mind? Because it went through mine. Why is he only bringing up black males? Did some of you think that? Because he's black? What about the officers? What about the domestic violence done by those black football players? What about Bill Cosby, America's first black dad? Pastor Brown, we can't show mercy and justice in those situations. It's too complicated. You know what's a trip? Regardless of what the situation a person is, we all, me included, tend to go to entitlement and excuses and blame and responsibility shifting, right? We start to put morals on things. We don't want, we, we don't want to spend our valuable mercy, Quan, right? on things that just, you know, a little twisted or, or, or I can't make perfect in my mind. Widows and orphans that James are talking about are the most imperfect situations around. But look at what your scripture says. The gospel comes so that what is imperfect, not what's already perfect, but what is imperfect may be made perfect. The gospel and God's people go to imperfect situations. That means things aren't all right. 
Things aren't all perfect, and the people in those situations are not perfect enough for you to feel you can get involved. It never will be. I warn you, it will never be completely able to check off all the blocks so that your friends on Facebook or your friends at the coffee shop won't accuse you of being whatever. I'm ashamed to say that at Christ Central Church, I've not done a good job as your pastor leading in this way and giving you clear commands and opportunities and follow-up. I mean, I met with some of you recently who were among the group that started this church, and you were on fire to care for the disenfranchised, and you joined Christ Central Church with hopes that you would have community institution to this. And this being the 11th anniversary day of our church, I must say that you've accomplished a lot, but there's so much more to be done. I mean, I truly hope we can. I say we because I need your eyes and what you and, 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 and who you see to get us reengaged and rekindled and figuring out how we do this thing from the top floor of corporate America to those living for and in the dregs of society. It is something I hope to tackle in discussion and teaching. And you guys send me emails. You pass around. Why'd you say this? Why'd you forget about this? What about these folk? And I'm fine with it. Send them. It makes me pray. It makes me think. I've forgotten something. It humbles me. It makes me realize we need a bigger gospel. Something I hope we tackle in discussion and teaching at midweek at some point and then do some real connection projects, 658 and other organizations. I promise you it is among the goals and desires that you're passing to repent and re-engage this area and lead you in the same. Because I believe we evangelicals are deceiving ourselves about our religion. If our lives are devoid of caring for, visiting, and letting our lives and hearts and money and social standing be affected by the social injustice and mercy needs around us, we might really be deceived. And as I tell you these things, man, I'm not trying to just hammer you guys. I'm feeling it too. And here's why we are deceived if we don't show justice and mercy. Because we are called to show justice and mercy to the disenfranchised like we are the disenfranchised. You know what caught my attention with this one? When we look at the social justice and mercy, it is always perceived as being public, right? A public religion in the public and populous eye. But look at what James says in verse 27 again. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled, what? Before God the Father. Huh. He didn't make a mistake when he wrote that. Before God the Father. In other words, social justice and mercy is about being right before God, between you and God, that it is a true reflection of your personal relationship with God. That caring for the disenfranchised is how and who your God, the God of the Bible, is like. And we should look like and look out like our Father if we are his children, but also because we are his children. This all goes back to being doers of the word based on the implanted truth of God's word that we have been active listeners, hearers, and recipients in verse 21 that behind our necessary acts of mercy and justice and kindness are the saving acts of God and the gospel we have heard and been infected, affected, implanted, and enculturated by ourselves. That get this, it should be easier, right? It should, be, it should feel right for us to show mercy and justice to the disenfranchised because that is exactly what God does and has done for us. 
regardless of who we are and how much money we make, that the story of every, every single Christian, I don't know if you didn't know this about yourself, is that spiritually you are all disenfranchised, that we were all orphans and widows undeserving and unable to bring anything to the table but our sin. By faith we were shown mercy by God and justified freely by him through Jesus Christ. And it's only happened because God visited us. He was looking and searching and sought out and found us and rescued us from being broken and separated from his holy family. And when we consider how holy God is, there was only one way we could be justified. By a mercy that would stain Jesus so that we could be enfranchised in the body of Christ. He gave and gives grace and voice to those of us who, like Eric Gardner, couldn't and can't breathe under the chokehold of society's sin, oppression, and abuse. Don't you realize you and I were and are some of us like 12-year-old Tamir Rice playing life with a fake belief system and he saw you as a child? That you're like Michael Brown. You not only fit the stereotypical de description, appearance, uh, and potential of lawbreakers being descendants of Adam, but you were convicted and judged by God as sinners walking around in violation and even arrogant enemies, aggressively some of us, challenging the authority of God's law, and he didn't shoot. He shot Jesus with what you deserve and justified you freely by his grace. And James is saying, there is no way we can know and believe that kind of grace, that you can have that kind of belief system, that you can, can be saved that way and have orthodox belief and then ignore and misuse and exploit the disenfranchised in your life and living. There is no way the gospel can be your faith and your religion is pure. It is obviously defiled by something. And that's what he follows with in the rest of verse 27. Look with me. We're going to quickly do this part. He's the father is this, right? He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, in their affliction. And he adds this, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I want to give us some umbrella context for going back to the scripture that started this whole, from, from the scripture that started this whole thing in a scripture we have worn out. Look back at verse 2. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. James' context and world is one in which the belief of Christians and Christianity itself under serious pressure to perform and show up and not fail people who believe in it. And there is this pressure and temptation to say and see and believe using your tongue in the wrong way and people in the wrong way. And, you know, there's so much pressure in the world that you feel that you may have picked the wrong religion. And it's easy to want to return to your former way of life and just look out for number one, right? Forget all that the other people, right? Even though you're believers, in fact, it seems harder. And in telling them to be steadfast, he's saying, be holy. Like, keep walking away from sin. Because why? In the pressures of this life, hear me, y'all, 
there is a sinful world and Satan that is after you and around you and pressuring you to fall apart and fall away. And he is saying to us, keep yourself unstained by the world by keeping walking away from sin. He uses the term world here. And it means a whole mess of stuff that would be opposed to what God has said and what God has promised and the blessing-filled life of obedience to the Lord that he frees us to have in Jesus. And it's interesting how he puts it. Keep oneself unstained. There is this picture of stainability all over the place, which means James is calling us to do what it takes to not be taken by sin, to bob and weave, to move away, to dip and dive, to be aware and diligent, to not get all comfortable and feeling fine with what the world and its systems and entertainments are putting out there and feeding us, especially when things get difficult. He is saying, pay attention. Watch yourselves out there. Fill your mind and ears with the word of God actively whenever you get a chance to be proactive, to think about it, be engaged and concerned about the walk of holiness. Ask yourselves those pain in the behind, irritating when you just want to enjoy something question. Is this beneficial to me? Does this glorify God? Oh, I don't want to ask these questions. Especially if it's a good show. Or if that that food's so good, I want another plate. I don't need it. Oh, boy, for some of us, they make me feel so good. Just hold me a little longer, baby. It's okay. You got to ask those questions. Questions. He's saying, actively ask yourself, is this free to me according to my belief to do and think and participate in? Is there a more beneficial and less dangerous thing or way? I don't want to ask those questions either. But he's calling us to keep ourselves unstained. We got more of that coming up. But ironically, this call to staying unstained by the world is so we can be all in and for the world. Look at the sentence structure again. In verse 26 to 27, it says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's actually saying by saying, bridle your tongue and visit the orphans and widows to go into the world and into the mess of the world. Okay, I'm flipping it on y'all, but James is doing it too. I'm just doing what he's doing. Because look back at verse 2, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now understand the whole picture. This is the last point. Now understand the whole picture here. He is saying, be holy, not only from the world's sin, but for the world's sin and brokenness, right? So people can hear and receive and be made perfect and complete and lacking nothing, especially those widows and orphans by how God is going to use your life, which is used by God to heal and help affliction and to make what is imperfect more perfect, to make what is incomplete and lacking less complete and lacking. 
And when he says incomplete and lacking and imperfect, I want you to think about an incomplete and lacking porch on the 30th floor. And there's a family in there and the kids want to go out and play on the porch. See, we think incomplete and lacking is only something internal in ourselves. James is taking it further and he's saying there is incomplete and lacking and wanting in the world among widows and orphans, among people around us. This is a missional piece here. Imagine, right? Think about an undercooked piece of food or unpurified water, a half-done sewer system kind of imperfect, incomplete, and lacking. Because God is calling our holiness to go out in the world so that people in us can no longer just and only be victims and suffer without hope in a fallen world. This is missional. This call to keep oneself unstained from the world goes back to something a young Jesse Jackson said. It is a call to keep oneself holy and in doing so keep hope alive. For those who have none and have lost it. To keep the light on in the world. As we stay tuned and connected to the gospel, as we speak with integrity, as we do justice and mercy because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did, driven by what God has done. We are ambassadors who are grateful recipients of heaven's welfare through Jesus who won't let the evil world tell them that mercy doesn't work. That the Bible and that grand and great story of God's love through Jesus is false and that all things are not going to be made perfect. We are going to the world and saying that is a a lie that we refuse to listen to and let the world lie to the disenfranchised and rich telling them to look out for number one say and believe what you want right we refuse because the gospel has refused to leave us the love of God in Christ constrains us and empowers us to go forward and for and in a world that is broken and only Jesus can heal, that is confused, but only the word of God can instruct, that is uncared for, but only God and Jesus can love. Keep yourself unstained by the world so that the world can hear the gospel message that is growing in you and coming through your life, shining brightly and clearly. To go out like Cindy Pearson. I see you back there, Cindy. Why don't you stand up for me? You won't be alone. Go on, she, she don't want, just put your hand up then. You need to be obedient, like Cindy Pearson. <laughs> fighting for her neighborhood school. Abandoned by most in her socioeconomic group in Plaza Midwood, Shamrock School. Fighting with state government to keep hope alive. Amanda Womack and Kelly Brown, y'all stand up. Go on, just trust me on this one. Where's Kelly? Stand up. Stay standing up. Cindy, you got two. Go ahead and stand up. Amanda and Kelly Brown, starting and sustaining the Nota School of Arts, 
for kids underserved in arts education. Laurie Humphreys, where you at, Laurie? Stand up, I know you hate it. <laughs> Raising your own support to live on little or nothing to be the coordinator of ministry. And that clothing store over there, she's a clothing store manager for Project 658. We're my teachers. Stand up if you serve in a Title I or impoverished school or to children with disabilities serving with principals like our very own Beth Thompson. Stand up, teachers. Where are you at? Where are our teachers in Title I schools serving in underserved areas? Stand up. Serving with principals like Beth Thompson, who's not here. Lee, she ain't here. She's sick. Her, Ben's sick. Her child's sick. But Beth Thompson, who serves in the marginalized school and who could be climbing the administrative ladder. And then people like Jason Van Heuklem, who is at nursery, in nursery, he's a deputy superintendent of Cabarra Schools, who is getting pushback for pursuing policies that will benefit the less fortunate students and families. Like Charlie Marquardt, stand up, Charlie. And Aaron Nasmith, who started an adoption agency. Alliance Adoption Services started it this year, right? Like all of our adopting families, if you adopting families, stand up. Those who opened up your lives for children and women and families who didn't have stable situations, who were giving home and family to orphans. Like Julie Goff. Where you at, Julie? Yeah, you a lawyer, passed the bar exam, could be climbing the corporate ladder. Wish she could make some money, but anyway. <laughs> but she decided to start a nonprofit, to be a part of a nonprofit uh, movement at Davidson College to provide AP education to kids whose schools couldn't offer it. Online education, so kids can reach it. Like Lee Thompson, stand up Lee. I know you don't like it who pioneered, now get this, and led for basically a decade urban young life in this city. A young life, a suburban, typically suburban Anglo ministry to inner city kids. Like all of us, all of our MSWs and social workers in this room, MSWs and social workers, stand up. I know y'all in here. who get pennies and nickels from back and forth, up and down government funding to help those who can't get help on their own. Like Elder Phil Prince, who is a marketing director for Habitat for Humanity. Stand up, Phil. Like Tom Fisher. Tom, where you at? Oh, you're already standing because you haven't adopted. Okay. He doing it twice, y'all. <laughs> who runs the Kairos ministry to men who are in prison. Runs that thing. Let's make cookies and cards for men who are separated from their family. And so many from dignity and worth. There are so many more of you in this room. And I've seen what God has done. I urge you, keep hope alive. Bridle your tongue. 
continue to visit the orphan and the widow. And keep yourself unstained from this world. This is what Christ Central Church is about. By God's grace. Oh yeah, I forgot two people I'm looking at right now and they're not going to like it. The Easterbrooks. They don't like to stand up for not at all. But they stand up for a lot of folk. Because on Sunday mornings they go to get bread. They fill up that pantry for people who need food. At their house. Keep hope alive. Look at what God is doing. Y'all can be seated. We're going to have our potluck. I want you to see those people and talk to them and encourage them and pray for them. And some of you you are doing it too. And I've forgotten or not remembered or there's so many. But I I want you to see these people are representative of what so many of you do. It is true gospel religion what you are doing. Speak with integrity. Show mercy and justice to the disenfranchised. Walk in the holiness of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. That we were widows and orphans. And you adopted us. You found us. We couldn't bring you anything. We couldn't pay you back. We couldn't bless you back enough. But you loved us. Lord, let the gospel truth that we hear each and every day change our hearts and humble us and help us remember that you gave us a home and you gave us a family we couldn't have on our own. And you became a father that we couldn't, never had or couldn't get. Lord, help us. This world is so hard. There's so much pressure to say the wrong thing and believe the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. Give us grace and power to continue on, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.